0: Coast to coast, border to border, and around the world, it's time for the Bill Alexander Show. The Bill Alexander Show is a guest-driven program where the topics are diverse and entertaining. Laugh and learn while you listen to one of the best hours of online radio. Now, here's your host, Bill Alexander.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Bill Alexander Show with yours truly, William Eric Alexander. All my friends call me Bill, and I'm so glad you're able to join us today. Because today, I have a treat for you and for me. A while back, uh, we spoke to Donna Lauren. Actually, she was on my program. I was on her program. And we talked about her time on Batman, which she was an occasional uh, guest appearance. But I have one of the original people on the program. can have Adam West. Unfortunately, he passed away f- a few years ago. But I have the boy Wonder, Robin. Bert Ward. Bert, how are you doing today?
2: Hello, citizen.
1: <laughs> so it's so great to have you here. I love the backdrop behind you. If you can give me a little ex- explanation of what that's from. Well,
2: that's from our Batman movie that we shot um, uh, during the first season. Uh, when we finished production of the first year, we shot a Batman movie. And this was, scene was actually uh, on the Santa Barbara Pier, in Santa Barbara, California, a beautiful beach area north of Los Angeles. And uh, it was uh, a rehearsal. We had, of course, our, our mask and my mask was off and Adam's uh, cowl was off. And uh, it was kind of a great shot because there you got, I mean, that's it. That's the whole crew. And you could see what a gigantic crew it was. And we were rehearsing just before shooting uh, and for the Batman movie
1: so how did they pick you for robin
2: well uh there were a number of people that tried out for the role i was told uh, by the executive producer they interviewed 1100 young actors over a course of uh, 18 months for the role and um the uh the way i actually got the role is that i was assisting my father on weekends he was a very prominent real estate broker in beverly hills california and uh, I would uh, sit on houses, they call it, where basically that uh, when people on weekends go to shop for houses, there's somebody there that, you know, will show them around or answer questions or give them a brochure. And one of the uh, people that came on that weekend, particular weekend, was a famous producer named Saul David. He had produced all the Von Ryan Express uh, movies, uh, Skullduggery and Our Man Flint movies. And so... Um, I, I I got talking to him and I asked him kind of uh, out of the blue, would you let me do a scene for you? And he said, well, OK. And I did a, a scene for him. He said, well, that's actually pretty good. Let me send you to an agent. I said, well, thank you. That's terrific. So uh, he sent me to an agent uh, the next week and the agent was not quite as thrilled, said, I can't get work for the actors I've got. I would never take anybody new. And the only reason I would take you is because of this producer asking me to do it. I had to do it, but don't expect to work for at least a year. And if you do, you might get one sentence. So I said, okay, okay. Uh, And then about a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call uh, from someone in his office that said, "Uh, there's something going on over 20th Century Fox. We have an appointment for you for tomorrow afternoon. And I said, oh, great. What's it about? Well, we don't know, but it just they're seeing a bunch of young guys. So why don't you go over there and we've got your name on the list and you can drive on the lot. And So I said, OK. So the next day I went and I was directed to one of these bungalows. That's where they it's interesting. They have bungalows instead of just, you know, building offices. And uh, I went in and I was introduced to the casting director. He asked me a couple questions and said, would you like to meet the executive producer? I said, sure. Why not? I mean, I figured everybody got to meet the executive, producer. You have to understand this was my first interview. I had been studying acting for years, both professionally and at UCLA, but this was my first interview for a real job. So I didn't know what the protocol was. So of course I said, yeah, happy to meet him, but you know, it's not that easy to get to meet the executive producer, but I didn't know. So they sent me to another building and I went in and, uh, I was introduced to uh, William Dozier and I maybe because this was my first interview and I wasn't worried. I hadn't been turned down. I wasn't rejected. I just walked right in and said, hello, sir, and shook his hand real firmly. <laughs> and he was like, what? You know, he was caught off guard because most actors, when they're going to meet an executive producer, the actors are a little intimidated by it. But right. I, I, you know, and he looked at me for a many. He says, you're kind of big for this part. I said, well, sir, I promise you, I won't grow anymore. And he <laughs> laughed at me, how are you going to stop growing, right? And he right. said, uh, would you like to do a screen test? I said, sure. I mean, after all, I figured everybody got to do a screen test. Well, that's not true. It's actually very expensive for a studio to do a screen test. But I didn't know that. So mm-hmm. it was another couple of weeks that uh, I got a call and said, OK, we'll come over to 20th Century Fox at this time. And so I went over and uh, they said, we're going to have you read for another with another actor. I said, that's fine. They handed me a single sheet of paper on that sheet of paper. It had a couple of paragraphs. One paragraph had Dick at the at the top of it. and The next one had Bruce and then Dick and Bruce, you know, typical dialogue, but nothing about Batman, nothing about Bruce Wayne or Dick Grayson. Um, but in any event. So I, I got it and I started looking. They said, you're going to read the part of Dick. And I said, OK. And they said, well, let me introduce you to the actor that we're going to have you read with. So they took me over and introduced me to Adam West. (laughs) And uh, I sat down, I said, well, should we run some lines together? He said, yeah, let's do that. And within five minutes, the two of us were laughing so hard. We just got along. I don't know what it is, a chemistry where people find another person just funny and entertaining and, you know, and uh, we just got along great. And, uh, so we, we did our, our dialogue and, uh, and on camera and everything. And, uh, again, it didn't say anything about Batman and Robin. So I, I thanked everybody. Uh, thank you very much. And I said, wait a minute, where are you going? I said, well, I, th- this is over, isn't it? No, 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 well, no. Actually, we want you to go on the other side of that soundstage here, go way over there. And we've got a trailer with a couple of wardrobe guys. that are going to help you get dressed. We have another scene for you to do. Okay. And I said, all right, well, you know, with all due respect, I'm perfectly capable of dressing myself. <laughs> oh, no, 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 you just go over there, you'll, you'll find out. So I walked to the other end of the soundstage, sure enough, there's a trailer, two wardrobe men there, and all this stuff is out on, looks like a giant mattress or something, it must have been eight or nine feet long, just this huge thing. And I said, am I going to put some of this on? They said, no, you're going to put all of it on. I said, what? And they got me dressed in the most uncomfortable thing, outfit, costume, whatever you want to call it, I had ever worn in my entire life. Everything itched or hurt or pinched. There was no peace whatsoever. But being a positive person after, and, and I could hardly walk in this, right? I was like, it was just so uncomfortable. And with the mask on, you you know, with the very little small little things to look through. I had no peripheral vision and no vision down, you know, looking down. I almost broke my neck coming out of the trailer, but I, I do remember thinking positive And I turned to these two guys. I said, well, the good news here is that after probably another 15 or 20 minutes, I'll never have to wear this costume again. You know? Right. Yeah. Famous last words. Right. <laughs> so there I go to the set and there is Adam West in this big cape and cowl. You see where I lived, there wasn't Batman comic books. So I had never heard of Batman and Robin. I had no idea what it was. In fact, I thought this whole interview thing was like for some Shakespearean period piece or something. I had no idea.
1: Interesting, okay.
2: And so then we did our stuff and, uh, you know, with the dialogue and, you know, I mean, I could tell there was something strange about it, but again, there was nothing about a comic book. I had no idea who these characters were or whatever. And then I left. And, and for the next six weeks, I got phone calls maybe once a week or twice a week from someone at the studio, like in wardrobe saying, oh, what's your shoe size? Oh, okay, seven and a half. Well, what's your hat size? Well, I don't know. I never wore a hat in my life. Well, go get your head measured. Well, okay. Well, where do I go to get my head measured? You know, I mean, all these things that I had no idea. And uh, finally, after six weeks, I got a call from these agents that were representing me and they said, well, we, we, we want you to come on in. We're going to sign you. You know, we're going to sign contracts. I said, great. I think I said, you know, they didn't even sign an agreement with me. And now I'm officially going to be signed where I have my own agent. So I drove uh, from the beach where I was living uh, uh, to uh, West Los Angeles and uh, went in to see these agents. And uh, they I, they said, here, go in the room and sit down and you have these documents to sign. I said, OK, fine. And I looked at this contract, it must have been an inch thick. And I said, wow, I didn't know agencies had these big, thick contracts like this. And I looked down and it said 20th Century Fox. And I, and I called the secretary, I said, no, no, I think there's a mistake here. Uh, these aren't my contracts. I'm supposed to be signing agency contracts. Right. You know? And they said, no, no, those are the right contracts for you to sign. And, and I said, what's that? And they said, well, you've got the part. I said, I do. I said You mean you didn't know? I said No. They said You mean the studio <laughs> didn't tell you? No. You know. And then finally, a few days later, when I went to the studio for, I guess, uh, some more fittings and stuff like that, they said, "Well, how is it you didn't know? Didn't your agent tell?" you? I said, "No. I said, Nobody told me." So four of the last six weeks, I had the role without knowing about
1: it. I'll be darned. Now. The program was only on from 1966 to 1968, and it was, what, 120 episodes, something like that? Yes. And it is amazing that the program that was only on for three seasons became such an iconic piece of our culture, because when you say Batman, you say Robin, the first thing that goes into people's mind, especially my age, are you and adam west because that is what batman was because we were watching it in the 60s and then through reruns through the 70s and 80s and it is still on in reruns did you ever think the program was going to turn into what it did uh
2: i don't think anybody could have guessed that remember we were a mid-season replacement for abc and um uh, all I can remember, which was really clear to me, is that I, because I rem- remember as an, as a performer uh, on, a, on a set, you it, it's not exactly the glamorous thing that you might think it is. You basically are in uh, this usually an uncomfortable costume with full of makeup all over you, and you're sitting waiting for 45 minutes, and then you work for 30 seconds. And then wow. you wait another 45 minutes, and you work for 30 seconds, right? And and I wasn't used to that kind of pace. So and 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 you're only seeing little tiny snippets, little pieces. So when the show was going to air on January twelfth, nineteen sixty six, I remember going home to my uh, little apartment and I sat down at my TV, as you know, by myself, sitting on a couch, and I turned it on, and you know, and this is you know, coming up, Batman, and I said, oh, okay. I'm, I wonder how it turned out. And you know, it was when I watched it, I was blown away. I said, this is really good. You have to understand, I had never heard the Batman theme music, you know. <laughs> I, I had not seen the graphics of the fight scenes with the right. zaps. I had not seen the, the the sound effects for the roar of the engines of the of, of the Batmobile and the turbines and the, you know what I mean? All of this stuff that was added. And the pacing of the show, so much excitement, this and this and that, you know, the speed of it and the color, the colors of the costumes. You know, color television had only been around for a couple of years at the time we came out. We were one of the first primetime TV series that had was color. And with our show, with the villains' costumes and the hideouts, with the sign that says secret hideout and things, all these things that were such great touches. And of course, Adam and I, because we had this amazing chemistry, we were never directed in all those 120 episodes, how to ever say our lines. In other words, we could be directed as like, okay, well, you're in the Batmobile in the scene, or you're at the Bat computer, or, or you're coming into this warehouse, or whatever that is, you know, the blocking. But in terms of how to say our lines, we were never, neither of us were ever told because we just had this natural chemistry. And, you know, the, Batman and Robin, as I, as we portrayed him, were superheroes, but also the comic flair of what we did, the campy style, the suggestive double meanings that we intentionally put in, uh, you know, to spice up the show. All of that was foreign to most people they had never seen i mean when back in those days when you watch television it was a police show it was you know you're a third party person a third party person watching a show where you've got good guys and bad guys but you're just watching it like in a movie what we did with batman and robin is we tried to reach through that television set and grab our audience and drag him right into this show and so and with Adam, you know, he had this very grand, deep, fantastic voice. And he was just, you know, he was just like and thought of himself kind of like he portrayed, you know, bigger than life. And he kind of thought himself like, you know, you know, uh, uh, Winston Churchill or something like that. And uh, and for me, the more big and grand he got, the more fast talking and paced I was, you know, which is counterpoint to him. And, you know, if you think about it in the past, all the great comic duos, the Laurel and Hardy, the Abbott and Costello, um, Mm -hmm. Johnny Carson, Ed McMahon. I mean, all the great comic duos, there was always great contrast. So when he would talk slow, like, well, Robin, I said, "Okay, Batman, you know, so and that pacing, people just loved it. They just loved it. And it was unpredictable. He and I didn't rehearse intentionally. I mean, we might rehearse the blocking, but how he said his lines and what he did, no, I reacted to him in every instance. And sometimes he would, (laughs) you see, he was very smart. Adam was really smart. He understood that this was a 30 minute show, each episode with 22 minutes of actual programming. And the slower he talked, the more on camera he would be (laughs) he would have these paragraphs and he's like, Oh my gosh, I'm starting to, you know, doze off. He's talking well, Robin, you know, and then I would have a line like, you're right, Batman, you know, and look how quick I said that you're right, Batman, but that wasn't good enough for him. He would come in in the middle of my line. You know, if I said, you're right, Batman, I said, you're right. Yes, Robin. You know, <laughs> in other words, he was going to take what little I had. But you know something? He, he was such a wonderful guy. And he was such a funny man with a sense of humor that was just so crazy and wild. And, and you know, that you can't help but love him. You know what I mean? At the same time, you're, you're, you're fighting dialogue to make sure. And then, he, of course, another thing he would do, we would be in a two shot where we're talking to each other. And all of a sudden... He would turn from looking at me and walk straight to the camera, so close to the camera, the only thing you could see is his mouth. They say, stop, Adam, Cut! you can't do that. This is a two-shot with Bert. Oh, I had to do it. What do you mean, Adam? Why did you have to do it? Well, because I felt motivated. Well, you get motivated (laughs) back into that scene with Bert, and you do a two-shot like you're supposed to. I mean, so and then and then there was a time when he would turn to walk to the camera, and without him expecting it, I would run under his cape and cut, get in front of him and, and do my line. You know, right? And it's like well, that's not fair, Bert. You cut me off. You blocked my shoulder. Well, that <laughs> at him, you know. I mean, but, so, but all is with love. You know, we the two of us had such a fondness, and all those years after the show of making appearances together. You know, I mean, I truly loved Adam. He was, he was like, uh, I don't know, just like a a, a best friend. Uh, and uh, but was what was interesting is at the time, and for me, which made a little bit of an adjustment for me. I was 20 years old, going on 21. Adam at the time was 37. Okay, which okay. is almost twice my age. But he was the youngest person on the set, except for me. All the crew, they were all in their 50s and 60s because these. Were studio guys at the studios. I mean, they knew that the cameraman was going to be the best cameraman and the lighting guy was going to right. be the top lighting guy. And, and these people had done so many thousands of shows that they used, you know, you don't want to have any mistakes. So they used, they had the top people for everything.
1: So you, you got to, in the three short seasons, you got to work with some amazing guest stars yeah. Cesar Romero, Burgess Meredith, Frank Gorshin, John Astin, Julie Newmar uh Eartha Kitt, Lee Meriwether, Victor Buu, yeah,
2: right, Vincent that, Price. Vincent
1: Price, you know, I mean, that it, that had to be amazing for a young actor to be working with these individuals that were stepping outside of their normal comfort zone by playing these very campy um villains,
2: right? And, and well, that must book, have
1: been really interesting for you.
2: Well, it, it was. I was a kid in the candy store. You know, I mean, every one of these people, these stars were people that I either watched on television growing up or or went to the movies and saw them in a theater movie. I mean, I was thrilled to be with them. and they all loved their time on Batman because they were given an opportunity to make their villain bigger than life, just like Batman and Robin were bigger than life. And they were given freedom. They weren't locked into a, you know, psychological drama or just some, you know, silly you know, uh, sitcom type of thing, they could be as big and broad and just dastardly as they wanted to be. And they all loved it in their laughs and their giggles and their, you know, each one had its own style, each, each, each performer. And they, they just loved it. In fact, our show was so big a hit. We're number one and number two in the entire world. We came on, on January 12th, 1966 with a 55 share. And what that meant is that in all of North America, including besides the United States, Canada, and Mexico, that 55% of all the television sets that were turned on in those three countries were watching Batman. And the other 45% uh, were distributed among dozens of, maybe hundreds of local stations and some regional stations and the other two networks. I mean, they all got tiny little shares and we were at 55. And just that is bigger than Super Bowl proportionately. Oh, yes. I mean, it was, so it was huge. And of course, after the everything was Batman, women were getting Batman style hairdos. The Batman merchandise was they it took an ad out, Warner Brothers, that they exceeded three point four billion dollars in 1966. That's like 30 billion dollars now. I mean, it was gigantic. Everything on Batman, the craze was just enormous.
1: So I read something the other day that um, Lyle Wagner actually tested for Batman. And then Adam West won the part. Right. What do you think would have been different if Lyle Wagner would have done the part?
2: Well, a lot different. In fact, you can watch both Adam and my screen test and Lyle Wagner and a, another young guy named Peter Dial their screen test is also on the internet you could oh is it okay it. absolutely and the difference is like night and day Lyle Wagner very immensely talented but he played it straight he didn't have that campy style that Adam and I had and then Peter Dial was a young actor and He, he just, he didn't do, you know, he did the best he could, but it wasn't the same. There wasn't this, when you put Adam and I together and, and no matter what we were saying, if we were just talking, he didn't have dialogue in 20 seconds, people are laughing just because of how we related so intensely towards each other. You know what I mean? And, um, and it, it, it's very dramatic, the difference, very, very dramatic. And when, when Adam had a line, you know, and the things he would say the way he would say it, you never really knew, you know, well, you know, is he really serious about it? Is he really, you know, that? and, and the comic, he, Adam was like a natural comic, you know what I mean? But, but it's not easy to play comedy where you play it completely straight, you know, and, and, you, and you have to be so good an actor that you can play something seriously and make it make people laugh.
1: So I've talked to other people that were on successful TV programs of the 60s and 70s. And the one question I've always asked is, how did the residuals work for you guys? Did you ever think 50-plus years later, the show would still be on in syndication?
2: Well, those really are two different uh, uh, questions. Because the residuals uh, for actors, at the time we were making Batman, was only a residual to the 10th rerun. So okay. when Batman finished in 1968 the last residual I got was 1971. There oh were- wow. Now now after after 1969 Screen Actors Guild negotiated in perpetuity, meaning that go forever, residuals but it's like 5% per- you have to air it nationally in something like 90% of the markets and then you get 5% of your salary. I mean, it's it's not. I mean, I was getting these big checks for fourteen cents, twenty-one cents. You know, I mean, it wasn't exactly you, you couldn't you couldn't buy lunch with it. Put it that way. Okay. At the
1: time, um, and, and, now. and now with the now with the internet, streaming services, and all that type of stuff, um, I, I'm sure you probably feel that you should be getting something for it because of the work that you and Adam and the rest of the cast has done. But again, people are caught are capitalizing on your work because they're able to show it without giving you anything.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I, it never really bothered me that much. And in fact, I, I'll tell you a quick story, which uh, when I was going to acting school, uh, both at UCLA, where I was studying, um, uh, I was, uh, you know, a junior year when I left to do Batman, but I, I studied also privately with a, a very famous uh, Hollywood coach, uh, his name was Eric Morris and we, I was went to his class twice a week. And I'll, I'll never forget, after class one time, he said, Bert, I'd like you to hang around for a minute. I want to talk to you about something. I said, okay. I thought, oh, my gosh, maybe I'd done something wrong. But after everybody left, he uh, he and I started talking. He said, you know, you're different from every other actor here. And I go, oh, uh, is that bad? He said, no, not at all. He said, you know, every actor in this class, I could tell, breathes and thinks and wakes and goes to sleep thinking about getting roles and working and they want it so bad so intensely every single one of them and and I said well I I want to you know I want to be successful too he said no no I I see that in you but here's the difference you seem to me to be a kind of person that if you get it great and if you don't get it that's okay no big deal life moves on And I said, well, yeah, I guess that's true, you know. And he said, "Is because of that attitude, he says, I think you're going to do tremendous stuff because you don't come across as so desperate and hungry that the, and no matter how I tell these other young actors, don't act that way. Don't, the more desperate you are, the less, less, less chance you have of getting a job. And so for me, you know, it was, I mean, I wanted very much. I always tried very hard, but, but, Life, you know, and and that's why to answer your question, it doesn't bother me that, you know, I didn't make a lot of money doing that. I I was, in fact, my contract, uh, Adam got paid 10 times the amount that I did because it was my first job. I got $350 a week. Oh, wow. Yeah. The second year, it had a nice big increase to $450 a week. (laughs) And then I made the killing in the third year at $600 a week. Now, so it's not a lot of money, considering that you have thirty percent taxes, ten percent agents' fees—that's forty percent. Five percent business manager. All these things you sort of have to have when you are doing this. Five percent press. So, a fifty percent of my three hundred and fifty dollars a week was gone. So, I was living on one hundred and seventy-five dollars a week while I was doing
1: Batman. I I would have never thought of that. That's that's actually. Uh... Very interesting. So after you did Robin, did you feel that you were typecast that there wasn't anything else for you to be able to do, or they look at you every time we see, we see Burt Ward, we see Robin or were you just okay with it?
2: I was okay with it, but there were people that, you know, typecast me. In fact, I'll tell you of an incident that I had while I was doing the series it was, you know, something that didn't turn out as great as I would have liked it. Um, While I was shooting the very first season of Batman at 20th Century Fox, there was a young uh, producer at Fox. His name was Larry Terman. And he came to me and he says, I've got a I've got a script. I got it approved this is a small movie for here at Fox. It's, it's not a big film. It's, it's small, but I'd like very much for you to do the starring role. I said, wow, that'd be fantastic. I'd love to do it. Fox was okay with it, you know, but ABC wasn't okay with it because Batman was so gigantic. They didn't want any dilution of my character as Robin. They, it, it, and so they wouldn't let me do it. And so I felt bad. I didn't get the movie. By the way, the name of the movie was The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> they, they couldn't get me, so they got Dustin Hoffman. And uh, you can imagine how successful that movie was. Right? Oh,
1: yes. Yeah. And
2: for years, every time in Hollywood, you know, you, there's certain restaurants people go to. Every four or five years, I would run into Larry Terman, he'd say, Bert, I always wanted you for that role. I did everything I could. I said, Larry, you don't have to say anything about it. I understand. And I would have loved to have done it. You know, I said, Dustin did a great job, but I would love to have done the role. You know, and it would have been uh, tremendous. But again, if you think about the role and then you think about my character as Robin, you know, that that, that could have been something that, I mean, I can't blame the network for wanting to protect the biggest show in their history, as a network. Mm-hmm. In fact, ABC at the time was actually not a, the, a third network. It was a syndicated network. And what Batman and Bewitch, those two shows on ABC, made ABC the third network. That's how big they were. They changed it from a syndicated network. So instead of having CBS and NBC as the two major broadcast networks in the U S they then ABC joined them as the third broadcast network, just because of these two shows.
1: Now, the next time I watch the graduate, I'm going to be trying to figure out how you would have played that role now, because that, that to me is just amazing. And especially a movie that became that successful with Dustin Hoffman, it, which actually gave him basically his first break. Oh, of course. That had to be. That had to be uh a little bit uh how do I want to say it? It probably bit just a little bit, but I get where you're coming from that that Robin I don't think would have been able to play that role and get the same respect as he did on Batman. So I understand that, yeah. yeah. So again, it that that's amazing to me. So what I want to switch to now is that you got you're not really doing any acting right now, are you?
2: I, actually, I am. Um, I uh, most recently did a, a spot on Supergirl uh, that they had me on. I, I had a guest, a, a cameo on Supergirl, which was right before the commercial. It was a it was a special s- a scene that they wrote for me uh, on this uh, uh, this series. That uh, they had well, there's they you know Warner Brothers has five shows um, on 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 cable or you know television, right? And, uh, this was uh, this this one situation you know uh, the cl- you know clash on the infinite earths you know um, and so I did that uh, which was great and then I, of course uh, I got my star in Hollywood Boulevard but actually I'm getting uh, going back into production now um, my wife and I are very excited we have our own uh, production company and we uh here where we live we have a beautiful surroundings we have a beautiful estate and we've just now built our own uh recording studio and animation studio we're building our own sound stage uh and we're going to be making television shows and movies that we're producing ourselves uh and uh, we're very excited about it and i'm going to be uh acting in those so i'm really looking forward to
1: it oh that's great to hear i mean that really is um One thing before I I go in the direction that I was going into right now, when the Batman franchise started to make movies, Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer, all these guys did. And I know Adam West felt like he was Batman, no matter, no matter what you can say, we still go back to that idea of him being Batman the same way we go back to Clayton Moore being the Long Ranger. Right. Did you guys feel ever slighted that you weren't asked to be in the films?
2: Um. You know, I guess I could have, and we wanted to. You know, I mean, if you think about it for a minute, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy with Star Trek, when that series ended, look at all the Star Trek movies that they did together. Yes, they were older, but who cared? Mm -hmm. Loved them more. They were more endeared to them because they were more fragile, more real, just totally. And I think... Adam and I could have done a wonderful job. Now the studio wanted to go in a different direction. You know, when you make programming for theaters, you have a slightly different audience. The majority of people going to theaters are teenagers and college kids. And then there's a certain senior audience. And then now with some of the animated movies, it brings in the kids. But for the most part, you know, at the time, uh, theaters were date night things. And, you know, Stuff like that, so they wanted a darker version of Batman. They wanted a serious version of Batman, and they felt, from what I understand, that you know our our comic presentation was just so strong that they might not be able to convey or convince an audience that you know we were dark and dangerous. You know,
1: right? The Dark okay.
2: Knight was a novel that was written by Frank Miller that really kind of started. But but I will tell you one thing: if you think about it. Do you really think that all these superhero movies that you see on in in which you're doing tremendous business? I don't think they would have been around if Batman and Robin hadn't paved the way for comic book, you know, with our comic book rendition. And another thing, there's something that I want to mention to you that Adam and I, we created something that is used in all movies today. And it's, it might be subtle, but let me tell you what it is. Um, we would in the in the midst of the most dangerous situation, we would have some kind of comic levity. So, like for example, we Adam and I, Batman and Robin, in a warehouse, and we're looking for the Joker, and all of a sudden, drop down from the from above are like eight giant guys, henchmen, ready to fight us. And I said, you know, gosh, Batman, look at them. There's eight of them against two of us. Odds in our favor. Right. Because there was only eight. (laughs) Right. And if you look now, think of all the movies, every movie right in the middle of the most dangerous stuff. There's a a quick thing, you know, like even in bad boys where they're talking, say, if I ever get out of this, I'm not coming to your house. I mean, you know, there's a comic relief in, in the middle of the most dangerous situation. We created that. It is in all movies now. So what we did was we pioneered a lot of stuff on Batman. We broke a lot of new ground and very proud of it.
1: So the rec- direction I want to go into right now, and I didn't even know about this until last fall. Um, I had, a, I have, I have three dogs. Um, I have a, a Dutch Shepherd, a Collie Mix, and an Australian Shepherd. Uh-huh. And the Dutch Shepherd was not himself. We didn't know what it was. Took him to the vet. The vet really couldn't figure it out. So I changed dog foods. Now, the interesting thing about it is I changed him to your dog food, which is gentle <coughs> giants, right? The dog turned around 110%. He's four years old. He was acting like a puppy again. He had the energy. He had all this. And I'm going, wait a minute, boy wonder is making dog food. This is really cool. Not only that, you're also making, doing uh, cat food too. Right. So What drew you into having your own line of animal food?
2: Well, how we got involved with that was because my wife and I are very dedicated to rescuing animals. We love animals. And for the last 28 years, we have been rescuing giant breed dogs primarily. Now we actually rescue like 45 different breeds that include small breed dogs. But we started rescuing giant breed dogs. And because they have traditionally such a short lifespan, when we would lose one, it was just so devastating to my wife and I that we said, there must be something we could do. These animals are so sweet. They're so loving. They are such gentle giants, you know. That, uh, so we, uh, we first developed a feeding and care program, which on our website, uh, gentlegiantsdogfood.com, and then there's gentlegiantscatfood.com, both of those sites as a full description of our feeding and care program we actually increase the average lifespan of a dog by 5 to 8 years just by the way you feed them and the you know how you do it it's very scientific and then we got to a point, and this was working, and we was like, "Wow, this is really working!" So we figured, what else could we do? Well, the only other thing we thought of we could do would be to change their food, and because we could afford it, we said, "You know, let's this is for our rescue," and you know, we weren't thinking about selling it. You have to understand, they just when you're living, and, and by the way, we've been living with fifty dogs in our house, sometimes more, sometimes less for the last 28 years, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, we feed 600 pounds of our Gentle Giant's dog food here wow. every single day. So, And to give you an idea what 600 pounds is, if you look at our big 30 pound bag, that's 20 bags a day. What do you think it takes to lift, carry, pour, and clean up from 20 big bags every single day seven days a week 31 days a month for 28 years it's a big deal so what happened was is that people that we and we would adopt these dogs we and the only way we were allowed to continue to rescue was because we would adopt the ones we have then you rescue new ones and adopt them and and we would train every dog i mean and they all lived in our house with us they weren't in some yard they weren't in some building they're living at home in a very nurturing environment where everybody, I mean, big ones and little ones, everybody had to get along, you know? And, uh, but the people that would come and adopt from us would see like 18 year old great Danes, which is like almost three times their normal lifespan. They live about seven, eight years. So 18 year old great Dane, uh, dogs that were twice their normal lifespan. And so when we would adopt them, they say, Oh, that's great. I'm so thrilled. And I just, can't believe that 18 year old Great Dane you have. And, you know, I can tell he's older and but he's in such good shape. And I said, Well, that's fine. They said, Well, what do we feed him? Well, whatever you want. Oh, oh no, 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 no. We want to feed what you're feeding. <clears throat> I said, Well, we've got a little problem there. We make a special food, it's in plain white bags. We can't legally sell it to you unless it's properly labeled. I mean, we found out real quick what we had to do. And because people say, well, I'm not going to take the dog. I don't want to take a dog that can only live seven or eight years when you've got them living into their 20s. You know, I want your food for my dog. And so we quickly scrambled and we complied and we had to file in every state in the United States uh, to get permission to, to sell in that state and all that stuff, which we did. And that's how it all came about. But we never took any salary from this. You have to understand the rescue we did, and we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on feeding and care for dogs. Uh, I mean, altogether in 28 years, probably five or $10 million over the course of time. And we never took any salary from our food. This, this is our charity. It's our life's work. And, and our only interest in helping these, beautiful loving animals live longer and healthier and and again i've talked to you about big dogs but we have tiny dogs here we have dogs that are the size of chihuahuas we have one breed called a chinese crested that's one third the size of a chihuahua and they live here amongst these giant dogs and middle sized dogs and you know uh, and and but it's always been our, our charity and we help people for free we we don't take anything from them. we don't charge anybody and we've made which in my opinion, is the finest food in the world. And, and the way I, I make that statement on the basis of the fact that how long we have dogs living, because people all the time come to me and say, well, I heard about this food and this one's so great. And I said, really? Well, the next time somebody tells you that they have a wonderful or a dog food that is so wonderful or so great, just ask them one question. And they say, oh, well, what's that? Just ask them to show you photos and videos of how long these dogs are living eating this food that they think is so great. And guess what? We're the only ones, to my knowledge, in the world that have dogs living as long as 27 and a half years, cats living up to 32 years. Nobody's done this. And people say, well, I mean, I look at your ingredients, they look like the same ingredients of other food. I said, no, they're actually a little bit different. And let me go ahead and tell you two gigantic things as to why dogs eating our food can live so long and and not just living long they are so healthy we don't have illness here I and mean, zero illness our dogs are so healthy the only time they go to a veterinarian is every three years for a 15 rabies update that's mm-hmm. all no illness And let me tell you something. All you need is one good vet bill. (laughs) Let me tell you, vets have become like human doctors. The expense is astronomical, but we're not spending money. We spent a tremendous amount on vet bills when we first started because the dogs were coming to us in every god-awful condition you can imagine. But once we got them on our food and on our feeding care program, it all changed. So, But let me tell you two giant things for your listeners and viewers that they could go right now and see why the food they're feeding, if they're not feeding gentle giants, their dogs can't live as long as our dogs. And let me tell you what it is. Number one, dog food and, or pet food companies know something the average person doesn't know, which is the more fat content you put in the food, the hungrier it makes the animals. A perfect human example, if you remember about 10 years ago, there was a man named Morgan Spurlock that went into a McDonald's in Ohio and ate every meal, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and a snack in that McDonald's for an entire month. He gained 55 pounds and almost died. They made a movie about him called Supersize Me. Mm -hmm. The principle is a high-fat content makes you hungry just affects your brain and makes you hungry but you're not getting good nutrition you get what we call empty calories there's no little very little value to the nutrition well that's a human example it's the same with dogs so when you fill dog food with fat and then on top of it which is even worse you say well how could it be worse you coat the outside with animal fat okay because that even makes them eat more All right. And all of this is to get dogs, eat more food. You got to buy more food, right? But let me tell you how bad it is. So, and I tell people all the time you want to see right now why our dogs are living twice the length of your dogs? Go pick up a few kibbles of the food you're feeding, rub those kibbles in your fingers, put the kibbles down, rub your fingers together. You're going to feel that slightly greasy feeling. Okay. It's not dripping in grease, but it is there on every single food to my knowledge, you know, except mm-hmm. for gentle giants. <clears throat> and, and people said, well, why is that slightly greasy feeling so, so dramatic that it's going to cut my dog's lifespan in half? I said, well, think of it this way. Would you ever take a can of bacon fat and pour it down your garbage disposal at home? Oh, well, of course mm-hmm. not. Well, why would you? Well, it would clog it up. I said, really? I said, in fact, don't you know that animal fat, unlike water that evaporates, animal fat coagulates. And when it Mm -hmm. hardens, it's like cement. And if you took a can of bacon fat and poured it down your garbage disposal, and you let it sit there for a day, the next day, you'd be calling a plumber to replace the pipes in your sink. Right. So when you realize that animal fat can ruin metal pipes, why would anybody ever feed a dog or a cat or any animal of food that every single bite, every kibble was encapsulated in animal fat. It's clogging their arteries, it's clogging their intestines, it's preventing nutrition being, from being properly distributed throughout the body. That's one big thing. And, and that alone can cut your dog's lifespan in half or vice versa by doing feeding our food double the length of your dog's lifespan. But there's something else. In the last 15 years, since about the, or maybe now 20 years, you have GMOs that have entered the American food market, genetically modified organisms in the food. For those people that don't know what it is, think of it this way. When a farmer grows, for example, rice, and they're growing rice plants, well, when they're growing the plant, there are pests that will attack the plant. And when they spray a pesticide on the plant, it can kill the plant as well as killing the pests. So companies like Bayer and Monsanto have come out with things like Roundup, that, you know, used to kill weeds, but also they would mix this, people would, scientists mix this into the, into the plant genes so that when a farmer grows rice and, and, and then the pests attack it and he sprays pesticide on it, the plant doesn't die. It actually lives and produces rice and which is sold into the marketplace, but guess what? That rice has absorbed the pesticide into it. And dogs and cats and animals' bodies are much more frail than human bodies when it comes to pesticides. And what, just like, you know, if you remember years ago when they said, oh, cigarettes, uh, the Surgeon General, you know, says that cigarettes may cause cancer. Well, after a number of years, finally came out where the U.S. Surgeon General says has been determined on cigarette packages that cigarettes will cause cancer. We've reached that point with genetically modified organisms in the food supply that are fed to animals, which, by the way, the frightening thing is that 98% of our food supply in the United States has now been genetically modified. So when we go to buy rice or brown rice or oatmeal or any of the fruits and vegetables for our food, it took us a year and a half to find non GMO suppliers because we're buying from that 2%, which costs twice as much yeah. <laughs> instead of buying from the 98%. So when you combine having no GMOs in the food, no genetically modified or no Roundup that dogs are eating, which kills plants, you know, and you look, in fact, look at all the humans that have sued companies that make Roundup because of the cancer causing thing. Uh, when So when we don't have that in our food and it's pure food that has taken us years to find these su- suppliers that can give us that, it changes everything for the dog. Now the dog is doing tremendous. And that's why when you say you've you got your puppy back again, it's because, it, and it, it, what happened is your dogs had accumulated fat in their arteries and in their intestines for years. Well, when you feed our food, it takes about 30 days. But what's really amazing is that that grease will work itself out of the dog's body by itself. It will work it out. The difference between our food and everybody else's food is that when the the fat comes out, their dog food's put it right back in. So the dog always has it in clogged arteries and intestines. We're not putting it back in. So after that period, when it's come out of their body, they feel wonderful. Their their coats are better. Everything is better because you've unclogged their arteries. You've unclogged their intestines and all of the nutrients, which we have so many nutrients, so much more than, than other companies because we're not taking salary from this. We're not trying to make a profit from this. We're trying to keep the dogs alive longer and the cats too. So that's the difference. That's why Gentle Giants is really the only food anybody should ever feed their animal,
1: period. And and like I said, I found it by accident because of the, the photographs on the bag. And I was at a big box retailer and it was very colorful. Now, the last dog we had introduced into our home about uh, six weeks ago, that's all he's eaten. And you can tell. That it's, it's t- I mean, the the more activity, the, the more vital they are and everything else. And we have family members that have dogs that when they come over the house, they're amazed because we're able to leave the dog food out and the dogs eat when they want it. We don't have to put it away because they don't gorge themselves like they do on the other stuff because of the fat content that makes them want to keep eating and over again. And they looked at us and going, how do you do that? I said, it's the dog food. They love it. They eat what they want. They go about their business, and they come back. and If they want to eat again, they eat again. But it's only on their time schedule. We're not forcing them to do it, which is amazing to these other people who I have a who's probably listening or will listen. To this they have a a dog that's overweight, and it's because, like I told him, I said it's your food that it is because you're giving them what's recommended, but for him right now, he just keeps pounding on those or gaining those pounds and you need to do something to start reducing it. And I've tried to convince them to use this and maybe listening to you, you will finally make them understand that this is the best dog food they can possibly buy.
2: Yeah and well and there's some other things too that are really sophisticated about our food. It's not just the fact that there's no no GMOs and the fact that we don't coat the, or fill the fat into the food. There's more than that. We have done so much research. I mean, just think about it. If you live 24 hours a day, 7 days a week for 28 years with 15,500 dogs in your life over the 28 years, I mean, there is so much that we learned and, 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 and one of the things we learned, okay, that, and how we have dogs living so long is that cancer is still the number one killer of dogs, which of course we've just discussed how GMOs in the food can cause that. But in addition to that, the second thing that happens to dogs that people haven't figured out yet, most people that I've talked to, is that dogs' bodies wear out much faster than human bodies. So if your dog doesn't get cancer, by the time a dog is eight or nine years old, usually they start to have a problem getting up, they start to have a problem walking. And within a few years, they get to a point where they can't get up anymore. And when that dog is pooping and peeing on itself okay that's when people take it to a vet to be euthanized even though mentally the dog is perfectly alert yeah and that's very sad but here's how we've combat that we have determined that what wears a dog's body out so much i mean you know like on batman we always had these hourglasses you know where you know they turn it over and like the sands of time are running out well think of your dog's life energy, that energy to be able to get up, to walk, to run, to play, to function, to eat, everything. That life energy over time dissipates and dissipates. And when it finally comes out, so to speak, all together, it's over. And it's over for our dogs as well as anybody else's dogs. But the difference between what we've done and what other people have done is we found a way to slow down that energy loss. We found a way, and and the way we have got that, I'll tell you how we do it, and everybody should be doing this, okay? First thing is, you should be elevating your dog's food and water bowls. Mm
1: -hmm. And there is
2: a specific height for every dog. I bet most people don't know that. And what is that height? It is a height that when your dog comes over to eat or drink, your dog only tilts their head down, but never leans down, never leans up. So if you get a puppy, for example, and you get it at the the right height, that food and water, because that puppy is growing, you're going to be constantly raising it until the dog reaches adulthood. That's one thing. And, And you say, well, why is it so important? Well, just think about it. Again, if you have limited energy every single day, a dog leaned down to the floor to get the food, comes up, chews it, leans down to get more, leans down to get water, up and down and up and down. You're prematurely wearing the dog's body out, okay? That's, that's one thing. Another thing that we found to be the biggest thing that wears a dog's body out is something you might not know, digestion digest, the effort of digestion is, is, is takes a tremendous toll on a dog. Let me give you a quick human example in your life. as in most people's life, haven't you ever at some point gone out and maybe you ate too much, you came home and you literally had to lie down to digest your food. You know, Mm -hmm. that that happens to people. Okay. Well, when you only feed a dog once or twice a day, you are making that dog's body going through that massive digestive effort. And it's prematurely, every day is going through that effort and it's wearing them out. We feed our dogs a minimum of five or more times a day, smaller, more frequent meals, less on the stomach to digest. And then there is one thing that I do want to give you a suggestion that modifies what you're doing. We do feed our dogs many times a day. Sometimes in our case, when they go out, every time they go out, They can have access to food if they want, but we don't leave it out completely, and I'll tell you why. There is a very deadly condition called bloat and torsion that kills up to 10% of the dogs in America every year. That condition is caused by food on the stomach combined with stress or exercise. Kind of think of it like when you were a kid and your mom or dad said, oh, don't go in the swimming pool for 30 minutes after you eat. <laughs> that famous phrase. Why were you told that? Because whoever told it, you knew that if you have food on your stomach and you have some kind of strenuous exercise or you're under stress, you can get a cramp. A human is much better designed than a dog. A human that gets a cramp can go lie down and in 30 minutes, 40 minutes, they're fine, but not a dog. Once a dog starts to cramp, their stomach is so poorly attached in their body, the stomach can flip over. And when it flips over, and it's very easy for it to happen, that immediately shuts out everything going in and out of the stomach, and the stomach immediately begins to die. And you've only got 35 to 45 minutes to get that animal to an animal surgical clinic, an emergency clinic or specialty clinic. Most veterinarians can't do this operation. This is like open heart surgery. And I like to use the example, God forbid, if you had to have open heart surgery, you wouldn't go to your family MD. You'd go to a cardiologist. You'd go to an expert because you know, it's such a major operation. This is very similar. And there's only certain places that can do this operation and you're better to avoid the problem in the first place. So we explain to people how to avoid this deadly condition. And, and as an example, what can happen? You're, somebody comes to your front door, and all of a sudden the dogs are barking, rah, 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 rah. and and then they calm down. Whoever was left or came in or whatever, and then you go feed your dogs. But your dogs got worked up, and your dogs can die from that. So here's how we avoid this deadly condition. Number one, only feed your animals when your dogs or cats are in a relaxed state. In other words, when there's been no stress, they haven't been riding in a car, they haven't been running or playing hard, they haven't barking or gotten upset. When they're they're at peace, that's when you feed them, number one. Number two, the atmosphere that you feed your dogs has to be peaceful. No loud television, no loud machinery, no screaming kids, peace and quiet. Number three, must elevate the food and water dishes as I've described. So they come over and simply tilt their head to eat or drink. Number four, no exercise, including no walking on a leash for at least one hour before and after eating. Walking on a leash is very hard on a dog's body. People say, why Mm -hmm. is that? Because a dog is used to be able to go the direction once, turn where it wants, stop when it wants but not when you're on a leash, the dog has to do stop. When you stop, they don't know what you're gonna do next. So they're always on guard, that's stressful to them. Mm -hmm. And the next one is no riding in a car for at least an hour, hour and a half before and after eating. And then the very last one is to feed your dogs a minimum of five or more times a day, smaller, more frequent meals. And if you think about it, understanding that food on the stomach combined with stress or exercise is what causes this deadly condition, by having less food on a dog's stomach at any given moment is less likely for the dog to bloat. This is how we do it. And of the, let's see, 15,500 dogs that we've had here, actually, we stopped counting five years ago. So it's probably okay. to 17,000, but whatever, not one ever bloated or died in our care. Never once, not one out of all of those. So we know exactly what causes, and we know how to avoid it. And this is a a horrible thing that's killing up to 10% of dogs in America every single year. And since there's 80 million dogs in the United States, you're talking about up to 8 million animals a year are dying unnecessarily because the people don't know how to properly feed them and care
1: for them. And I, I really appreciate that because I never knew that until just now. And I'm sure that everybody watching or listening also didn't know that. So that's a big, helpful tip. And trust me, as of this afternoon, the dog's feeding schedule is going to change. So yeah, I'm going to take care of that. But yeah, again,
2: that's another thing. Also, people I people say, well, I feed my dog every day at five o'clock. And I said, well, don't do that. I said, well, why is that? I said, because life is imperfect. And sooner right. or later, you're going to be stuck in traffic or we have to go someplace and and if five o'clock comes, and you're not fed that dog. Your dog's internal clock is going to go off. And say, where's my food? Where's my food? And that's going to be put them under stress. Stress kills. So what do we do? We feed ir- at, purposely at different times. You right. see what I mean? And 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 then therefore, and and there are some people that say, yeah, but if I put the food out, my dog won't eat it every time. I said, well, he doesn't have to. He he or she has to understand that. They can have food when they want it. You know, it's just like as humans, we can all day long, if we're in our home, we can walk past our refrigerator without eating every single time we go past it. Well, when the dog understands that he doesn't have to worry about food, that he's going to basically have it whenever he wants, he's not going to be panicking to eat it.
1: Well, Bert, thank you very much. It was great talking to you about Batman. And thanks for the information about the dog food. My dogs love it. And um, again, I'd love to have you back in the program once you get your own movies and TV programs up and running so we can talk about what you have coming up in the works. And again, thank you very much. It was an honor to be able to talk to you today. Well,
2: I would like to just add one thing for those of your listeners or viewers that want to know where they can get gentle giants, they can go to Target stores. And, you know, we all, there's like, I don't think 1,600 Target stores throughout the country. And I think we're in about 80% of those. And in addition to that, online, these online companies like Chewy.com, Petco.com, PetSmart.com, TractorSupply.com, Giants uh, Dog uh, 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 generalgiantsdogfood.com and target.com all have it online and some of them have it with free next day delivery so it's very easy to get our food and and just expect that you're gonna after 30 days gonna be oh you'll see a, a different dog <laughs> no question about that
1: and we get ours delivered every three weeks by chewy so that's <laughs> it's here it's ready And again, if anybody has any questions about what it can do to change a dog, call me, because we are a great example of how it changed our dog's life. So again, Bert, thank you very much. I'd love to have you back on the program when anything else new comes along. And again, thank you for uh, spending time with me today.
2: Well, I'd just like to say what we said on Batman. To the Batmobile!
1: (laughs) Thank you very much. You have a great day. Thank you. Take care hey a big thank you goes out to Burt Ward for joining me today what a blast that was really enjoyed talking about his career and his time on the tv series Batman and also talking about his uh, animal food especially the dog food General Giants and if you need any more information about that go to his website GeneralGiantsDogFood.com and you can find out more information and trust me it works wonderful my three dogs have never been happier. So again, thank you very much, Bert. Thank you everybody for watching and we'll talk to you next time here on The Bill Alexander Show. You guys have a great
0: day. Thank you for listening to The Bill Alexander Show. The Bill Alexander Show is a million dollar baby production. For more information, go to thebillalexandershow.com. Hear that?